And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secret and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steebie, the Scotsman's political podcast. I'm Alistair Grant, the political editor of the Scotsman and Scotland on Sunday. And I'm joined today by the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent, Alexander Brown, and political correspondent, Jane Bradley, as we take a look at the latest goings on in politics and keep an eye on what could be quite a dramatic week ahead. Sadly, Conor Matchett, who would usually be doing this podcast introduction, isn't able to join us today as he's somewhat outrageously having a few days off. He'll be back next week, by which point... Who only knows what will have happened in politics by then? Last week was dramatic enough. We had a, a Tory MP dramatically quitting the party, crossing the floor of the House of Commons and joining the Labour benches just minutes before Prime Minister's questions kicked off on Wednesday. We had a senior Tory MP, a former Cabinet Minister, David Davis, stand up in the Commons and tell Boris Johnson to, quote, unquote, in the name of God, go. But this week could prove to be even more dramatic as we have senior civil servant Sue Gray's inquiry report into the Downing Street party scandals expected to be published in the coming days. Uh, amid speculation, it could be a bit more detailed and potentially a bit more damaging than perhaps some in Downing Street are expecting. We've also had claims that Conservative Party whips have effectively tried to blackmail MPs to bring them into line by, for example, threatening to withdraw funding in their constituencies. And we had extremely serious allegations over the weekend by the Conservative MP Nusgani that she lost her job in government in part because of her Muslim faith. Now, it's probably worth saying that Conservative Party whips strenuously deny both these allegations, and Nusgani's allegations will now be the subject of a cabinet office inquiry. Uh, but Alex, I mean, what do you make of the last few days in politics, and what do you make of the week ahead? I mean, is this make or break for Boris Johnson? I mean, in my informed analysis of it, it's all about to absolutely kick off. We're going to get the Sue Gray report this week, possibly Tuesday or perhaps Thursday, and I mean, even since we last spoke, it has only escalated and escalated. I mean, last week we were having Downing Street were briefing, or at least people in Downing Street were briefing newspapers that, oh, he's going to be fine. They've been telling MPs he's going to get cleared and then we'll all go through with it. But now it looks like maybe it's not. Sue Gray is interviewing Dominic Cummings today, which could be a report <laughs> in of itself. It's now been widened as well to include meetings at the flats that he shares with Carrie. Carrie had what they are describing as work meetings several times during lockdown with two people who she's very close with. I mean, they are friends, but they were work meetings, but no minutes were recorded or explanation given as to what, you know, what work was happening. It's a ridiculous time. I mean, Martin, Martin Reynolds, Paul Martin Reynolds, who emailed, sent the email about the party, he's now said to have flipped. He is now helping extensively uh, and has the login and logouts of people going into Downing Street. The Prime Minister's diary is going to be examined. There's possible photos. I mean, it is unbelievable they're at this point and to think that you know the senior Tories were trying to pressure 
uh, Sue Gray. Because it's worth noting, she is what she does work for Whitehall. They technically, you know, she is employed by the government to hurry the reports along. But it just seems like this is the never-ending folder. There is always another party. There is always another scandal. And I genuinely have no idea how bad it's going to be. But it, you know, all signs point to carnage. I mean, how important is the report? I mean, is it is it in a sense choreography because MPs will already have decided if they want to put a letter into 1922 committee and they're effectively just waiting for this report out of a sense of, you know, they feel like they should, but they've already made that decision. Is oh, yeah, it, I mean, or is it something that will actually change their minds? It's absolutely all for show unless the wording clears him. I mean, those who haven't said anything yet are kind of hoping that it's going to be so vague that she won't make a judgment that technically it will go, oh, mistakes were made. And then, as we've already seen, he can then throw, uh, the Prime Minister can throw his staff under the bus. We already know he's assembled, reassembled his leadership team. They're making a list of the MPs who are loyal and not. Uh, and the plan is to try and shore up, to shore up support and then get rid of people. Though it's worth noting uh, in one of the meetings where they were talking about this, one of the PPSs said to, uh, I, I think it was to Martin, I wouldn't piss on you if you're on fire. So support <laughs> is not necessarily there. But, you know, even the MPs who've spoken out haven't sent letters in. David Davis, who said, you know, for God's sake, man, go, said he's going to wait till the report and ruminate on it for two, three days before sending a letter. We know that he wants Prime Minister to go. He's already told him to. But if they wait for the report, it then holds a bit more weight and they can go, look at this. You lied. You know, there's the evidence. Which is absurd, really, because we know the Prime Minister lied. It's not politically biased. It's not political accusation or even a political point. The Prime Minister said... He didn't know anything about anything about parties. He was shocked about the reports. And then he went to a party. And his excuse that he was there for 25 minutes and he didn't know that it was a, he thought it was a work event suggests he's either a liar or just a total idiot. But thankfully, given his uh, record, we know that it's, he is a liar. I mean, the idiot stuff can be, is for debate, but we know he is a categorically a routine liar. So um, MPs have already decided it's just about the word during the report that maybe tips it over the line. Because I think we are going to have a vote of no confidence. It's just whether he uh, survives it, I think. And what do you make of the situation, Jane? I mean, probably in particular as well, those other allegations about uh, kind of blackmailing from Conservative Party whips, you know, threatening M- MPs to withdraw funding from constituencies if they don't kind of vote in line with the government. What do you make of that kind of thing? I mean, there's some kind of commentary over the weekend that a bit of comparison to the MPs' expenses scandal in the sense that those within the political bubble just think, well, that's politics for you. That's the kind of cynical world of politics. But maybe those who look at this from the outside would think, well, that's despicable behaviour. The point is as well that they've got to lead by example. So if we just, you know, if within the political bubble, if it's just accepted that that's politics, that just filters down at the rest of society. People who are working for corporate companies, for any organisation who have any kind of situation that's similar, blackmailing or pointing to the sort of allegations of uh, racism. And if that kind of thing's just accepted at Westminster, it's accepted across the country. And that's why people feel so angry about it and that it really, really needs investigating. The problem with this kind of thing, of course, is it's one person's word against another. And that's why it's very, very difficult to, to get a handle on what's actually happening. Alex, well, what do you make of that issue? Well, I would say that the police have now been contacted. I mean, the police have given material to Gray. So it's not just... He said, she said now, there, there appears to be actual evidence from it. And I mean, it's also the Telegraph. Put it this way, if Boris Johnson's still the Prime Minister by the end of the week, I'd be very surprised. So we are in a position where there's not going to be a fire ruling of, legality, of illegality, but it's really, really escalating. I mean, I've never, I know that we always keep saying we're unprecedented times, but away from the pandemic, 
This is the most scandals and the most unusual stories I've ever had to cover. On the blackmail stuff, what was interesting is I I did some, you know, generically sarcastic, whiny tweets about that, about that happening. And I got a few messages from both MPs and staffers all going, oh, come on, you know, that's been part of Westminster and how it works forever. And even Michael Fabrican gave the bold truth and said that, you know, it's he's been threatened and he's threatened people before and that's part of it and the police shouldn't be wasting time which is in itself admitting that these all the blackmailing happens it's uh it's there's a horrible aspect of westminster that i think people don't know about but doesn't mean it's not there and horrible you know i it's if you're not if you're not in the bubble you don't know what happens but just because it happens doesn't mean that it's good do you think this is maybe a moment for re-examining that culture i mean do you think there's any hope of change when it comes to that kind of thing if indeed it is happening to the extent I don't yeah, think there is any hope, no, because I mean, what whips have always had, you know, gossip or held stories over people or, you know, they've offered them jobs or whatever. And I don't know how you go from that to, I don't know how you instill party discipline if you're not offering things and three line whip. I mean, it, what's a whip going to do other than go, oh, please, oh, please. I know I'd like to think that they'll go, oh, come on, you know, this one's really important to us. Do your bit. But other than that, what what is there? And it's always the carrot of the stick. I mean, even Gavin Williamson, when he was uh, the chief whip, joked about it. I remember being at a Tory conference and he made a huge joke about how he would or he was happy to use the carrot or the stick. Threatening MPs is a laugh. And from a man with a tarantula that he keeps in his office, he is the one accused of threatening to withdraw support for a school. And how threatened do you think Boris Johnson's position is? If there is a vote of no confidence, do you think he's likely to cling on or do you think he would be likely to lose that? Well, I, you know, I'm speaking to MPs about this and the idea, and some, you know, who don't think, who may be closer to him, think, well, you know, it's not great, but getting rid of the prime minister now is the only way to guarantee that we lose the next election. Because they don't rate any of the other contenders. Maybe to you and I and the general public, this seems like a moral issue. I don't really care if the prime is electable. The same way with Jeremy Corbyn. I'm sure if you were, I think what was frustrating about that was a lot of Labour people. I can understand that you might agree with the, his left wing politics, but the anti semitism stuff should be enough that it's an immediate no. You know, you have to have a moral authority from those that lead you. It's not. It's not enough to go. Well, the policies fit closer to mine, and for many MPs. That will be enough. But then for others, you know, they knew they knew what the prime minister was. Others have texted me saying, "Oh, it was all priced in. We knew we knew what you know. We know what he's like." And when you've seen what he's done before, you've seen the Nazanin Ratcliffe stuff. You've seen him get fired from numerous things for lying. You've seen all the Jennifer Arcuri stuff for God's sake about having him technology lessons. He's not someone you go to as like a moral bastion of truth. You go to him because he's charming and he wins elections. So it, the, the, the question is, is he going to be still be charming and can he still win an election? And if they think he's more electable than anybody else, I think he'll survive. What do you think, Jane? Do you think he's under threat? Well, he's obviously under threat. It's Yeah, as Alex says, it's just a question of, of whether whether there's a viable alternative and is there anyone who's, who's going to be more popular. But I think in terms of the public feeling about him, you know, I said last week, I thought there was still a certain amount of public feeling that he was still getting away with it. He was still fairly popular. I think that tide is turning, but there are still going to be some people who think, as you say, you know, that's just who he is. We knew that's who he was at the beginning. You know, we'll just keep him in. But I think the public backlash against him is growing and growing by the day. Every story that comes out, people are getting more and more angry. And especially as it's so emotive, you know, what was going on during lockdown when people were trapped in their homes, they weren't allowed to see dying relatives, they weren't allowed to, to, to meet with their closest friends and relatives. I think people are angry. And, you know, the balance they've got to come to is, would the public elect him again? And I think 
the answer is increasingly becoming no. I feel he's got to go, but whether he will or not remains to be seen. And to what extent is this a distraction from kind of other issues? I mean, we're hearing a lot in the media these days about the, the kind of cost of living crisis and the various pressures that households are facing. And I know this is something you've written about, Jane. I mean, to what extent is this distracting from that? Well, I mean, it is distracting from it. And I mean, this is one of the biggest cost of living crises we've ever had. I mean, gas bills and uh, are going to go up 50% in April. We could be looking at hundreds and hundreds of pounds a year on the average gas bill. Everything's going up. The price of food is going up. Inflation, everything is rising. It's an absolutely unprecedented crisis. And I think the feeling increasingly is that, you know, obviously the, the Tory government doesn't really have a feel for what's happening to people who are on low incomes or no incomes, you know, people who are on benefits. That is going to be a massive, massive squeeze. And the increase of £20 a week to the universal credit was cut back in November. So, you know, there's anyone who's struggling for cash is going to be struggling even more so. There's a feeling that that's just not really being thought about because this, you know, political bubble crisis is going on. And Alex, what did you make of those news Ghani allegations over the weekend? Obviously, extremely concerning, extremely serious. Where do we go from here with that in terms of the Cabinet Office investigation and how it's been handled so far? Well, it's quite telling that we were told that she'd reported them to the Prime Minister at the time. And he, you know, expressed the line from Downing Street was, oh, he expressed his concern and told her to report them properly. But when she had said that to do so, you know, she felt like her role in the party was a threat. She felt undermined. Placing the burden of dealing with racism on the minority is appalling and the idea that they said there would be no inquiry it's on her to deal with it and if only you turned after you turned after a backlash i mean speaks to the heart of what this government's been about they don't do the right thing at the right time they do it in the face of a backlash only it is a horrible horrible story i mean an almost unbelievable story and the fact that we have backbenchers again like michael fabrican coming out to defend and minimise somebody else's experience of racism is absolutely baffling. The same in anti-Semitism, people who were not Jewish would come out and go, actually, here's why this is fine. And for him to have done that, as someone who would come out and make complaints about anti-Semitism during Labour to score points, is utterly damning. There'll be a Cabinet Office investigation. Who knows where it can go? It was really embarrassing that the chief whip deleted, you know, tweeted that he had been accused of it and he was person involved and then deleted it and then tweeted it again. It's just farcical and a really, really unpleasant thing. And to go back to your, your question about distraction, I think this is one of the things that most annoys me in politics is the idea that, oh, everyone will talk about this and not talk about that. We know about the situation in Ukraine. We know it's a disaster. We know this cost of living crisis. The SNP have an opposition day debate on the cost of living crisis. Labour are talking about it constantly. And it is something that the government knows has to grapple with. It is the big battle going ahead in politics. But that doesn't mean that if we talk about corruption, we talk about scandals, we talk about the fact that the Prime Minister has lied to the public and his own MPs, that we are ignoring that. There can simply be more news or like more than one issue. <laughs> I can think... Well, of course they can, but, but, the, but the thing is that if you are somebody who is looking at this looming cost of living crisis and you're looking at how you're going to feed your child and how you're going to heat your house and you're not going to freeze in minus five conditions in the next you know few weeks when, the, when a cold snap comes in, you might be thinking, well, all this bollocks about Boris Johnson going to a party and when they drank champagne and stuff, that's really distracting from what's actually happening to me now. People will be feeling that. I know, but I 
do. I don't mean the people themselves think that. I mean the the government. I mean people on the right using those things to say, yeah. oh, we don't need to be talking about that. We need to get on and be dealing with it. You know, over the weekend you had MPs going, and even in, in the Sun today you have Dominic Raab saying, you know, the Prime Minister has handled Brexit and he's handled the pandemic, and now he, he needs to handle the cost of living crisis and get on with things. Uh, and he's a great leader. I, I, I certainly don't mean people who have those concerns. I mean it's now being used and weaponized as a tool to deflect from the scandals. When in actuality, I think the, the, it's on the government to address it. It's on the government to go, okay, sure, Sue Gray can do her report. And while she's doing that, we're getting on with the job. I mean, it would be so easy. I mean, the, the whole thing about this red meat policy stuff that's going to come out, the cost of living crisis would be a key way to fix that and go, okay, well, you know, I know this thing looks bad, but here's a way that we are actually making your lives better. But even over the weekend, we've seen the funding set aside for public transport halved. You know, it was going to be four billion. I think it's now slightly less than two. The amount of money and the amount of support that they're giving is not there. But it's on, the, it's on the government to address, not public. And if you had to predict, I know this is kind of a, an unfair question in a way, but if you had to predict where we'll be this time next week, what do you think will have happened by then, Alex? I think the report will have come out. And that's basically all I can say. No, I think, okay, I think the report will have come out. I think it'll be really damning and show that everyone looks bad out of it, including the Prime Minister. It won't be enough for him to immediately go though he should immediately go or already have gone, and that then there will be a brief lull period where number 10 are trying to get rid of other people and pin the blame on them, and we'll be playing the blame game for a bit while MPs go, I'm going to take the weekend. But the weekend is key because the weekend will be when MPs go back to their constituencies and when they get emails and letters from people going, oh my God, what the hell, get rid. So I think Monday he will be in a very, very precarious position he won't be gone. I don't think we'll have be at the threshold until at some point next week. What about Eugene? What, what do you think? I agree. I don't think we're going to be in any position next week where anything's going to be suddenly cut and dried and absolutely clear as to what's going to happen. We'll have to see what comes out in the report and what the consequences of that are. But I don't think we're going to be in a situation next Monday where we're going, right, massive changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one thing's for sure is going to be another dramatic, extraordinary, insane week in Westminster politics. Um, I think to, to move on to another issue, I mean, obviously in Scotland this week, we're seeing the kind of latest stage in the coronavirus pandemic in the sense that those restrictions that were introduced post-Christmas have been lifted. So nightclubs have reopened, social distancing rules have been removed in hospitality venues, bars, restaurants, large indoor events can go ahead. It kind of seems like we're at a different stage now. We're kind of on our way out. I mean, what do you think of the these issues, Jane, and what issues do you think remain to be addressed? Well, the issues that remain are uncertainty and, you know, nobody can predict what's going to happen. I mean, we've already got a sort of slight offshoot of Omicron under investigation. It's, you know, it's not being considered to be massively drastic at the moment. But, you know, who knows? I've got to the point where I read about another variant and I'm just thinking, oh, God, here we go again. We're back to square one. We probably won't be, but we might be. We just, nobody can predict that. So, yeah, at the moment, things are looking brighter and I don't want to be the the pessimistic person saying it's all going to be disastrous because it may well not be. Yeah, great. Restrictions are being lifted. I think we should possibly try and enjoy it while we can and then, you know, see what happens in a few months. Hopefully the summer period, spring, summer will improve things anyway, no matter what. And what do you think, Alex, in the sense that Boris Johnson is obviously engulfed by so many crises at the moment, but in terms of how he handled the Omicron variant, there are some people who argue that 
he played it quite well in the sense he didn't introduce those tougher restrictions post-Christmas and seems to have largely got away with that in the sense of having the same COVID rates roughly as Scotland. Do you think he did handle it well? I mean, where do you think the situation is in England and kind of UK-wide? Yeah, I mean, looking north, looking up the road, it seems baffling to me that you've had such severe restrictions because we've just got on with it, you know, keep going and carry on, which has been the approach of the UK government throughout a pandemic that's killed 175,000 people in the UK. There's not really any backlash. It's not It's not even a political battle worth fighting anymore. No opposition parties going, oh, you've got this wrong, or got that wrong, because they are distracted by both the cost of living crisis and Partygate. So I think he's got it, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I suppose, for the opposition parties. I think he's got it completely right. There doesn't appear to be any backlash. There doesn't, there's not been waves of deaths. Hospitalisation has gone up, but the NHS hasn't been overwhelmed. Everyone's got their boosters. It's as good as it can be in the sense that I don't really think about it. You know, living in London, I just, my friend, a lot of friends test positive and then everyone carries on. But you're a young person who most of your friends are presumably young as well and, you know, are less likely to be affected by it. You know, if you've got people who are older, people who've got underlying health conditions, it's a bit scary, the idea that restrictions are being lifted. You know, I've got friends who've got, you know, underlying conditions that make them susceptible to various things. And even with boosters and whatever, you know, they might be more susceptible to long COVID. People are still worried. And the more restrictions that are lifted, the more that scares them. But they've been they've been lifted for ages anyway. We haven't had any restrictions in England for a very long time. I know old people. My grandma is now just, you know, getting on with her life. My friends who've got underlying health conditions have been have had underlying health conditions and had to just carry on for a long time. I, they, and I don't know what you can possibly do to prevent that. I mean, other than the booster campaign to deal with, you know, Omicron, people can be scared if they have another health condition, but nothing's going to change now. It's not like people are going, oh, we've left these people behind because what can you do? You can't offer restrictions specifically for them. Uh, what do you think of those, like the different messaging north and south of the border when it comes to key issues such as, you know, returning to offices? Because I think one of the anomalies in Scotland at the moment is that, you know, from Monday this week, you can effectively, you know, go into a hospitality venue. You don't have to socially distance from anyone else to the extent you did. But offices, for example, if, you, if you're somewhere where you can't wear a face mask, you still need to be two metre distancing apart, as far as I understand it. And it seems to be in England, there's there's kind of this this drive to go back to the office. I saw there's a couple of front pages at the weekend, I think focused on Whitehall in particular and getting civil servants back to the office. I mean, do you think this is something that's going to become a bit of an issue, Jane, when it comes to the future of city centres and and kind of what we expect from employees. There are more people back in the office, even in Scotland, than we think. You know, I mean, there was the kind of before Christmas, Nicola Sturgeon said, you know, we'd like to return to, a, you know, working from home where you can. I think a lot of companies didn't take that as seriously, as hard as they had did the first time. So she sort of said at that point, anyone who was working from home in the first lockdown should be working from home again. I don't think from my experience of people I've spoken to, I don't think that's necessarily been the case. So there are still people who are going into offices regularly. I think flexi working in those situations has become the key. You know, there are people who've been told they're going to be working from an office two or three days a week, not full time. I think there's very few, apart from industries where you've got to be present, you've got to be in a shop or you've got to be in a hospital or whatever. But, you know, people who are office based, I think not many people are going to be going back full time. I don't know whether that's the case in England as well. Does it feel, Alex, that it's gone to flexi working as an on a permanent basis now? Yeah, I mean, I go in to Parliament once or twice a week. Most of my peers now are going in probably more. People are going Westminster a lot more are, are in five days a week. And my friends in, you know, 
different jobs are all seem to be going back to the office a lot more. I'm a huge advocate of never going in or doing anything ever at all. I take it as a personal slight if I have to leave my bedroom, say, to sit down for a podcast. This it just seems like we're as close to back to normal as we've ever been. I think so. It doesn't feel like that here. I went into the Scotsman office for the first time last week in quite a, quite a number of weeks and to pick something up and there was one person working in there. Our, our company has been taking Nicholas Sturgeon's work from home, you know, pretty much to the letter, but I don't think that's necessarily the case with all companies. But whether there's going to be a, you know, a return now, I, I don't know. I, I can't see it on a going back to a normal basis for a long time. If ever. And that is going to have a massive effect on, on companies within city centres. No, no, neither can I. I mean, I'm never going back full time to working five days in the office a week. And I don't think most places will. <laughs> we have a hilarious campaign being run by a few newspapers in England trying to get people back to the office. But newspapers are, have their own staff you know, working from home. The Mail on Sunday is routinely bashing that out every week. You know, there were briefings that you know the government and Number 10 would have handled things a lot better if staff had been in the office, which doesn't really work because some of the staff are at parties and also holds no weight when Dominic Raab was in, Af- was in on the beach for the Afghanistan crisis. It's less like a policy thing now because I think everyone universally accepts that people are just going to work from home. It's just become sucked into the culture war because people need something to fight for. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that this is a kind of longer term change. I think that the days of going into the office five days a week, I think are probably definitely over. But I should probably touch on as well, one of the things that Nicola Sturgeon has always said she would do when the pandemic started to die down is restart the case for independence, restart the kind of independence campaign. And she was on the TV over the weekend, essentially saying that she would decide the legislative timetable for a second independence referendum in the quote unquote coming weeks. Uh, What do you think of this, Jane, in terms of, do you think this is kind of choreography in a way, this is a bit of theatre, or do you think there is a, a serious prospect of having a second referendum before the end of 2023. I think there's definitely a serious prospect of having a referendum in the, you know, in the coming year, two years. I mean, she obviously has said next year whether that will happen because we could obviously see delays, you know, again, if there's a, another variant, if something happens with coronavirus and something might end up being delayed again. But she is saying into next year, I'd be, hmm, I might be eating my words in a few months time, but I'd be surprised if it's by the end of next year. I can see it being pushed back a little bit. But yeah, I, I think we are going to see a second independence referendum soon in the foreseeable future. And Alex, I mean, the UK government has just repeatedly said no. Boris Johnson has made clear he's not going to agree to this. I mean, admittedly, Boris Johnson might not be in power for that long. But what what do you think the likelihood is of the UK government playing ball to the extent that would be necessary for this to go ahead in the way it did in 2014? I mean, what reason is there for them to play ball? There's a pandemic. No one really wants it soon anyway. Speak to MPs in the SNP here. They don't want it yet anyway. They know it's not the right time. They're not confident that they win right now. Several told me they don't do it until they're on 60% or more, which is just not going to happen. I don't think there's any rush or inclination of the UK government to do it. They are trying to show, uh, you know, this four-nation approach and a lot more direct investment in Scotland. But given what's going on with the Scottish Tories and the UK (laughs) government, it just would seem like a really bad time to be like, yeah, have a referendum. By the way, we all hate each other and we understand why you do too. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's no, uh, until something happens in Holyrood, there is no thought whatsoever. And even then, they'll just kick the can down the road. I mean, that's a good point, Jane, because I think one of the points that people always make is it's hard to imagine kind of better together a pro-UK campaign in the same way we had in 2014. For one, one example is just that Labour wouldn't want to be involved. It was The perception was that it was incredibly damaging for them last time. But we've also got the problem now that the Tories are so split. You know, we've got the, the Scottish Tories effectively you know, calling on the, the Tory Prime Minister to be removed. Do you think this would leave any kind of future pro-UK campaign? 
Well, yeah, and I mean, that's maybe one of the reasons why Nicola Sturgeon's setting it out to, to do it now. I mean, you know, on one hand, we're saying it's not a great time for them in some ways. You know, they, some MPs are saying they want to wait for more support. But and then on the other hand, it's maybe a great time because there's no cohesive opposition in terms of a, a better together style campaign this time around. It could be the perfect time for them to do it because the other parties are in disarray and disaster and they're not going to be able to mobilise themselves to actually fight back for the union. And if the UK government says no, do you think this will end up in the courts? Could do. <laughs> <laughs> More if we get it. <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs> Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks very much to Jane and Alex, and thanks very much for listening to the Stevie. 